Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. In December of 2017, we each selected Christmas-themed episodes to listen to, and I chose an adaptation of Charles Dickens' other ghost story, The Signal Man. The story doesn't inherently have a Christmas theme, but ghost stories are a bit of a holiday tradition in Britain. 23 years after publishing A Christmas Carol, Dickens published The Signal Man in the 1866 Christmas edition of the literary magazine All the Year Round. It was part of an anthology called Mugby Junction, which featured stories about the rail lines that extend from that junction. The story was adapted by several series, including Lights Out, Hall of Fantasy, Columbia Workshop, and Nightfall. The Weird Circle adapted the story under the name The Thing in the Tunnel. Suspense adapted the story for radio three times. The first featured Agnes Moorhead and aired March 23, 1953. It returned in November of 1956, featuring Sarah Churchill, and then again in February 1959, featuring Ellen Drew. Given how many adaptations of the story exist, I thought it would be fun to make a holiday tradition of listening to a different version each December. Our first year, we listened to the suspense version from 1956 with Sarah Churchill. The year after that, we listened to Columbia Workshop's version from January of 1937. Our third year featured the version presented by Beyond Midnight. And the fourth year, we listened to the adaptation from Lights Out. Last year, we returned to suspense for the adaptation starring Ellen Drew from February 1959. Now, for our sixth version of the story, we are listening to Nightfall's take on the classic tale from December of 1982. Nightfall was known primarily as a supernatural horror anthology series. Bill Howell, known for his work on CBC Playhouse and Johnny Chase, Secret Agent of Space, pitched the idea for the show to Susan Douglas Rubes, the Canadian broadcasting company's head of radio drama. The result was one of CBC Radio's most successful and most controversial drama series. It ran from July 1980 through June 1983. And now, let's listen to The Signal Man from Nightfall, first broadcast December 1982. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. When apparitions beckon, and your fear is a warning, Good evening, dear friends. Frederick Hent, your fellow traveler on tonight's quest for facts. A lonely outpost, a monotonous job. Just the sort of things that can lead to strange flights of fancy or to strange events, in fact. In this evening's story, The Signalman by Charles Dickens, adapted for Nightfall by Otto Lowy, we are drawn down an irrevocable path to the truth. Pay close attention to detail and you might avoid disaster. Listen.
When he heard a voice thus calling him, he was standing at the door of his box, a flag in his hand pulled around its short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came. But instead of looking up to where I stood on the top of the steep cutting nearly over his head, he turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so, though I could not for my life have said what. But I know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice, even though the figure was foreshortened and shadowed down in the deep trench, and mine was high above him, so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset that I shaded my eyes with my hand before I saw him at all. looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him without pressing him too soon with an idle repetition of my idle question. A rapid train passed below me and was skimming away over the landscape. When the vapor disappeared, I looked down again and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I say I want to come down and speak to you. Over there! The park! All right. I'm coming down. Looking closely about me, I found a rough zigzag descending path notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep and unusually precipitous. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. For these reasons, I found the way long enough to give me time to recall the singular air of reluctance or compulsion with which he had pointed out the path. When I came down low enough on the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way by which the train had lately passed. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness that I stopped a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way and, stepping out upon the level of the railroad, drew nearer to him. He was a dark, sallow man with a dark head and rather heavy eyebrows. His post was in as solitary and dismal place as I ever saw. On either side... A dripping wet wall of jagged stone, excluding all view but a strip of sky. The perspective one way, only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon. The shorter perspective in the other direction, terminating in a gloomy red light, and the gloomier entrance into a black tunnel in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot that it had an earthy, deadly smell. And so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck chill to me as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him. Not even then removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This is a very lonesome post to occupy. Yes, it is. A visitor is a rarity, I suppose. Yes, indeed. Not an unwelcome rarity, I hope. I've been shut up within narrow limits all my life, and it is only recently that I've become interested in these great works, the railroads, for instance. That's why I spoke to you. It's all very interesting. Is that red light part of your charge? Don't you know it is? No, I don't. You look at me as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful whether I had seen you before. Where? There. There? That's that 
That red light? Yes. My dear fellow, what would I do there? However, be that as it may, I, I never was there, you may swear. I think I may. Yes. Yes, I'm sure I may. Have you much to do here? Yes. I suppose I have enough responsibility to bear. Responsibility? You might call it that, sir. It's exactness and watchfulness that's required of me. No manual labor to speak of. What are your duties, if I might inquire? Well, sir, change that signal. Turn those lights and turn this iron handle now and then. They must be long and lonely hours at times. I've grown used to them, sir. Is it necessary for you, when on duty, always to remain in that channel of damp air? Can you never come up into the sunshine from between these high stone walls? Uh, that depends on times and circumstances. Times? Circumstances? Yes, sir. Under some conditions, there would be less upon the line than under others. And the same holds true to certain hours of the day and night. And in very bright weather, I do choose occasions for getting a little above these lower shadows. But then I'm always liable to be called by the electric bell. And I have to keep on listening for it. That means, of course, that the relief would be less than one would suppose. <laughs> yes, sir. Exactly that. But come now, sir. Come with me. He took me into his box where there was a fire, a desk from an official book in which he had to make certain entries, and a telegraphic instrument with its dial, face, and needles. Excuse me, sir. A message, I believe. I trust that you'll excuse the remark, but you seem to be well-educated. Perhaps educated above your present station. I hope I might say this without offense. Not at all, sir. Well, I liked to read early in my life. I was even something of a student of natural philosophy. And I attended lectures. But then I started to run wild. Misused my opportunities. Gone down. Never to rise again. I'm sorry. Oh, I have no complaint to offer about that, sir. I've made my bed and I have to lie upon it. It's far too late to make another. Excuse me, sir. I have to see the train go by. this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in his capacity, but for the circumstance that while he was talking to me, he twice broke off with a fallen collar, turned his face towards the little bell when it did not ring, opened the door of the hut, and looked out towards the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. On both of those occasions, he came back to the fire with an inexplicable air upon him. You almost make me think that I have met with a contented man. I believe I used to be so. But I am troubled. With what? What is your trouble? It, it's very difficult to impart, sir. If you ever make me another visit, I will try to tell you. But I expressly intend to make you another visit. Say, when shall it be? I go off early in the morning... And I shall be on again at ten o'clock tomorrow night, sir. I will come at eleven. I'll show my white light, sir, till you've found the way up. When you have found it, don't call out. And when you're at the top, don't call out. Very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Very well. Let me ask you a parting question. Tonight... What made you cry hello 
the lauder. Heaven knows I cried something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. I admit those were the very words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason? What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in a supernatural way? No. Indeed, no. With this, he wished me good night and held up his light. I walked by the side of the down line of rails with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me until I found a path. It was easier to mount than descend, and I got back to my inn without any adventure. Next night, punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom with his white light on. I have not called. May I speak now? By all means, sir. Good evening, then, and here's my hand. Good evening, sir. And here's mine. With that, we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat by the fire. He began bending forward as soon as we were seated to speak in a tone but a little above a whisper. I have made up my mind, sir, that you shall not have to ask me twice what troubled me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening. That troubles me. Who is it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. The left arm is across the face, and the right arm is waved. Violently waved. This way. I followed the action with my eyes, and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. For God's sake, clear the way. One moonlight night, I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello! Below there! I started up. I looked from that door, and I saw that someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Look out! Look out! And then again, Hello! Below there! Look out! I caught up my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure, calling, What's wrong? What has happened? Where? It just stood outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up to it and had my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Into the tunnel? No. I ran into the tunnel 500 yards. I stopped and held my lamp above my head and saw the figures of the measured distance, and saw the stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster than I had run in, for I had a mortal abhorrence of the place upon me. And I looked all around the red light with my own red light. I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop of it, and I came down again and ran back in here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back both ways. All is well. But surely, in that case, this figure must have been a deception of your sense of sight. It might have originated in some temporary disease of the delicate nerve that ministered to the functions of the eye. Within six hours after the appearance... The remarkable accident on this line happened. And within ten hours, the dead and the wounded were being brought along through the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood. Hmm. It is not to be denied that this was a remarkable coincidence calculated deeply to impress your mind. 
But it is unquestionable that remarkable coincidences do continually occur, and they must be taken into account. This was just a year ago. Six or seven months passed, and I'd recovered from the surprise and shock when one morning, as day was breaking, standing in the door, I looked towards the red light and saw the specter again. Did it cry out? No. It was silent. Did it wave its arm? No. It leaned against the shaft of the light with both hands before the face. Did you go up to it? I came in and sat down. Partly to collect my thoughts. Partly because it had turned me faint. When I went to the door again, daylight was above me. And the ghost was gone. But nothing followed? Nothing came of this? That very day, as a train came out of the tunnel, I noticed at a carriage window on my side what looked like a a confusion of hands and heads, and something waved. I saw it just in time to signal the driver, stop. He shut off, put his brake on, well, the train drifted past here a hundred yards or more. I ran after it, and as I went along, I heard terrible screams and cries. A beautiful young lady had died instantly in one of the compartments and was brought in here and laid down on the floor between us. Here? True, sir. True. Precisely as it happened, so I tell it to you. Now, sir, mark this and judge how my mind is troubled. The spectre came back a week ago. Ever since it has been there now and again by fits and starts. And the light? At the danger light. What does it seem to do? It seems to say, with its hands, for God's sake, clear the way. I have no peace or rest for it. It calls to me for many minutes together in an agonized manner. Below there, look out! Look out! It stands waving to me. It rings my little bell. Did it ring your bell yesterday evening when I was here and you went to the door? Twice. Why, see how your imagination misleads you. My eyes were on the bell and my ears were open to the bell. And if I am a living man, it did not ring at those times. No, nor at any other time, except when it was rung in the natural cause of physical things by the station communicating with you. I have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. I've never confused the spectre's rings with the man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else. And I've not asserted that the bell stirs to the eye. I don't wonder that you fail to hear, but I heard it. And did the spectre seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times? Both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? I will, sir. Do you see it now? No. It is not there. Agreed. I've seen it. Therefore, you will fully understand, sir, that what troubles me so dreadfully is the question, what does the spectre mean? I'm not certain that I do fully understand. What is it warning against? What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity will happen. It's not to be doubted this third time after what has gone before. Surely this is a cruel haunting of me. 
What can I do? It is a difficult question to answer, indeed. If I telegraph danger on either side of me, or on both, I can give no reason for it. I should get into trouble and do no good. They would think I was mad. His pain of mind was most pitiable to see. It was the mental torture of a conscientious man oppressed beyond endurance by intelligible responsibility involving life. When it first stood under the danger light, why not tell me where that accident was to happen, if it must happen? Why not tell me how it could be averted, if it could be averted? When on its second coming it hid its face, why not tell me instead she's going to die and let them keep her at home? If it came on those two occasions only to show me that its warnings were true, and so prepare me for the third, why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord help me, a mere poor signalman on this solitary station. Why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and with power to act? I cannot answer your question. If it will help you to compose your mind, all I can say to you... Let it be a comfort to you that you understand your duty, though you do not understand these confounding appearances. But if you like, I'll stay with you through the night. He would not hear of that. The occupations incidental to his post as the night advanced began to make larger demands on his attention, and so I left him at two in the morning. That I more than once looked back at the red light as I ascended the path. That I did not like the red light. And that I should have slept but poorly if my bed had been under it, I see no reason to conceal. Nor did I like the two sequences of the accident and the dead girl. But what ran most in my thoughts was the consideration how ought I to act, having become the recipient of this disclosure... I had proved the man to be intelligent, vigilant, painstaking, and exact. But how long might he remain so in his state of mind? Next evening was a lovely evening, and I walked out to enjoy it. The sun was not quite down when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point from which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the chill that seized upon me when, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw the appearance of a man with his left sleeve across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed, and in a moment I saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed, and that there was a little group of other men standing about. I descended the notched path with all the speed I could make and then spoke to one of the group of men. What is the matter? Signalman killed this morning, sir. Not the man belonging to that box? Yes, sir. Well, not the man I know. Oh, you'll recognize him, sir, if you knew him, for his, his face is quite composed. Oh, how did this happen? How did this happen? He was cut down by an engine, sir. No man in England knew his work better. But somehow, he was not clear of the outer rail. It, it, it was just a broad day. He'd struck the light and had the lamp in his hand. As the engine came out of the tunnel, his back was towards him. She cut him down. This man here, Drover, uh, showed the gentleman how it happened, Tom. Yes, show me, please. Well, coming round the curve in the tunnel, sir, I saw him at the end. Well, like it if I'd seen him down a perspective glass. Well, there's no time to check speed, you see, and I knew him to be very careful. Well, as he didn't seem to take heed to the whistle, I shut it off when we were running down upon him, and I called to him as loud as I could call. What did you say? I said, below there, look out, look out for God's sake, clear the way. Oh, my God. It was a dreadful time, it was, sir. I, I never left off calling to him. I put this arm before my eyes not to see. And I waved this one to the last. 
But it was no use. No. No. I suppose it was no use. fate calls, there's little that can be done by mortals like you or like me. Here's who was involved in tonight's tale. The Signal Man by Charles Dickens was adapted for radio by Otto Loewy. It featured Leon Pownall as the visitor and Duncan Fraser as the Signal Man. The railway worker was played by Desmond Smiley and William Samples was the engine driver. Technical operation, Jerry Stanley. Sound effects, Chris Cutras. Production assistant, Dagmar Kafanka. The Signalman was produced and directed in Vancouver by Robert Chesterman. Executive producer of Nightfall, Don Kowalczyk. And now a clip from a future Nightfall, Weather Station 4 by Arthur Samuels. We're into a difficult situation and we're handling it. There's no cause for panic. Not the yet. Anyway. There isn't. We'll what? What if that storm doesn't let up? Huh? And that supply plane? What if it doesn't we'll get through? We'll deal what? with the ifs as we come. Meanwhile, you better try to relax. You'll last longer here. Pour yourself a cup of tea. Well, you call that tea? How many times have you used that same stupid tea bag? Easy, easy, lad. Next week. We're giving you a night off. It's Christmas Eve. So we thought you might like to relax on one Friday of the year. But we'll be back the week after with a young man who has a very disturbing love affair with a not very willing lady on Watching by Brian Wade. It's produced and directed by William Lane. Until then, I'm Frederick Hemp for Nightfall. This year's Signal Man from Nightfall here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. Okay, here we go. Sixth year of this. First question, how many more are out there? How many years can we get out of this? I know of two more. Oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do in two years? We're going to do our own. Okay, then what? <laughs> then we're going to do another one. Okay. <laughs> then we have to stop. All right. <laughs> I'm getting worried. Okay. I feel like we're burying the lead here, and I just got to jump in with, wow, that was not what I expected. I know. Oh. From Nightfall? Oh, yeah. Uh, if we're going to jump in right on. I just can barely contain myself. I, uh, that was, in our sixth year, the best version of Signalman we've ever had. And no, that wasn't very nightfally at all. It was pretty straightforward storytelling. No, there's no guitar or no, synth right, incidental right. music, no, no contemporary Canadian references. I actually no. think that they're going to do electric guitar licks, but I expected the discussion to be like really sort of close, intimate. We're having a discussion quietly between ourselves, and it's. Did you expect it to be period? Not really. I don't think I did. I honestly expected it to be something like a 1980s shock jock who gets a phone call on the air from <laughs> right. a guy in a sure, sure. signal shack and it like plays out like some kind of version of uh, Ghost Hunt or talk radio from Oliver Stone, like we, where all the action happens over the air. We now have an outline for the story that we're going to do three years from now. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> uh, I'm interested that you, you found this the, your favorite best. version so far. Yes. Because I very quickly, in listening to this, stopped and opened up the text of the story. And this is, I think, as close it is. to verbatim of the actual text of the story. Okay. The Signalman, in general, is a difficult story to follow. I, the first time we listened, it was like, what's happening? 
He's flagging down what and who's going where and what. And, and then, you know, it's explained to me. And then I said, okay, that's Six the story. Times. <laughs> right? And then you, he, you listen, you go, I know the story. Are you going to tell it right? As we know, the Ellen Drew version was terrible. We, I thought the Sarah Churchill suspense version was really good. It was my favorite up until uh, yesterday. What I think there I was loved, a brief period in which the lights out was your favorite. Yeah, here's what it is. This is the best job of straightforward, to the point, crisp, clean corner storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm not sure how to compare it to all the other productions, but I will go this far with you, Eric, and say I think Duncan Frazier, who plays the signalman in this one, gives the best signalman performance. His performance Mm. is amazing because it's nuanced Mm -hmm. he actually sat down i think well as tim says it follows the story so well he didn't need to sit down and read the actual story because the script does it his is the first performance that i've heard that jibes with the great line from the story uh when the narrator says you almost make me think i have met a contented man yeah in a lot of the other adaptations that include that line uh, the person playing the signalman doesn't match up with that. He's playing him a little like agitated and and haunted, and he starts his performance in this very staid, almost placid, almost like a British butler stereotype of someone who has really accepted his lot in life. It is one of the things that maybe is attributable to the modern Nightfall aesthetic. They let him be silent. They really let him take his time. Mm-hmm. Two really great moments that stand out for me that, again, I think Josh was right. Was, like, was this really Nightfall? Like, uh, Nightfall, as we know, has a tendency, oh, that was close, and then you made me mad, <laughs> or yeah. does something weird or something. The two moments in this that I was just like, great work, was when he asks him questions at the top and he just doesn't answer. Yeah. He's just staring at him, uh, I think I've seen you before, I don't know if I should answer mm-hmm. you. Are you a spirit? Are you, right? The other one was when he said, I can't remember what the line he says to him, but there's this huge chunk of silence where you can actually see in your head the narrator, the non-signalman. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Not Charles Dickens. (laughs) Going, oh, wow, that was a crazy piece of information. Without any reaction, Foley music, Nothing. It's just very silence. minimally produced. Yeah, but that to take that risk with that. I wish I could remember the line right now, but it was just beautiful. It was just quiet for six seconds, and he went, "Oh, okay." There's so many spots in the script where the narrator could be silenced for a couple seconds. So it's it's hard for me to remember the exact one. I don't know if it's because like, the the big moment is when he was talking about, "Oh, the bell rings, but you don't hear it." That might uh, be the the, one. Sometimes you just it vibrates, and I can tell that there's yeah something out there. It was really underproduced in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it relied on performance and yeah. writing. And Duncan's progression as the signalman is very small, but mm-hmm. it's there. It's incremental. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different demeanor he has the second night mm-hmm. when the visitor comes. And particularly, which is a great moment from the short story, when uh, the narrator extends his hand and they shake hands. So they yep. touch. And he knows then you're a real person. Yep. And suddenly his whole conversational tone becomes more intimate and more mm-hmm. urgent. You feel the relief that he finds out, okay, you're real. There's a relief. But also, I'm a very lonely man in this job, and I'm going to open up a little now mm-hmm. and tell you stuff because I got to tell somebody. And I think that's been intimated in all the versions we've heard that he's lonely, and mm-hmm. a chance to tell somebody and talk to somebody is a welcome opportunity. I don't know if this for me is is my favorite version. Um, well, I, you're wrong. I quite like the lights out. Uh, what we liked about it so much was the technical execution of it. Yes. Um, this doesn't have like the really visceral train sounds. No, it does not. Uh, and I really liked the character work and acting in the first one, the Sarah Churchill episode. Yes. What this nails for me is the tone, the creepiness. Uh, I can describe a scene like it had this scene in it. Well, they all have the scene in it, but it, right. Um, he's describing the woman who was brought into their the his little hut there and just died on the floor here where we're sitting right now. Yes, that was it. That was the moment. 
That I'm so sorry to interrupt. When he told them she died right here, there was a six second silence. And then he goes, oh, okay. Th- thank you. Yeah. 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 I thought that was really powerful. Powerful. And, yeah. And spectral. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the performances so humanize these two people, not just uh, the performance, the signalman, but also, I forget the gentleman's name who played uh, the narrator. You really sense his compassion. He does not have to be here on a cold night. No. In the dark. And he just brings that out. And so it really underscores certain elements of Dickens' original story that after listening to it years after year after year, I I think I've probably become a little deadened to, or mm-hmm. it's just become yeah that's that part of the story. I felt right. it more this time. Yeah, and I think particularly exactly right the cruelty of this haunting scenario, and that yes. it's not a guy who's being to- well he is being tormented, but not because he's terrified or has some guilt. It's a sense of responsibility, and so yes, it's guilt because he didn't understand what he perceives to be a warning from the specter. And I just said that tragedy of a failure to communicate yes. and a guy who is that committed to his duty instead of like, I'm going to quit this job. Right. right. And that's what's key to this version is this guy who had other options in life, but because of his own failure, this ended up being his only option, but he's going to commit to it 100%, yeah. even if it means, as it does in the story, his death. Duty. and eric ruined it (laughs) look out (laughs) but it i think it also redirects me back to the story and i can't remember from other podcasts how much of this actual dickens story we've discussed not as a compare and contrast so much as questions about the actual text is the specter actually warning him or is the specter slowly luring him to his death? Is, right. is the specter less Cassandra and more Siren? Again, I don't remember if it was made clear in other versions of this. But when the narrator comes back and sees the figure down there of the person standing by the danger light during the motions, it turns out it was the guy who hit him recreating what he was doing. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Is this specter just a vision of the future of this guy reenacting what he did? Mm-hmm. You're right. I am jumping to conclusions by framing it as a ghost story and not some other type of supernatural experience. The signalman is seeing a glimpse of the future. I like the ambiguity of not ever figuring out exactly what, as you said, Siren or Cassandra or Warning or a Glimpse of the Future. I don't ever really want to solve this. And I, out of the six we've listened to, none of them made that more clear and fun. Mm -hmm. What happened? Who really knows? Uh, It's up to you, listener. It's an ABC After School special. (laughs) What would you do? (laughs) We have in, in past in analyzing this talked about how do they take a pretty sparse story and fill it out to make a half hour and different adaptations and different strategies. Mm -hmm. And this one really just took the story and gave it space, let it breathe Mm -hmm. and didn't add anything to it. Yep. Uh, I think it was a good choice. Yeah. And so the strengths of Dickens stories really stands out to me, I guess this time around, like I said, and to Eric's point of that, there's all this ambiguity yet Dickens still manages to pull it together and feel like there's a satisfying conclusion yeah, without answers. Right. And I think one of the key elements is when the narrator is just trying kind of in vain to comfort uh, the signalman uh, after the second night when he leaves and says, you know, let it be a comfort to you that you understand your duty, if not the confounding appearances. Mm-hmm. And then when he comes back and the railroad people are describing the body to him and say, hey, there, he's over there. He says his face is quite composed. And that just stood out to me again this time about how it has all these tragic elements, but that in and of itself is a subversion of ghost stories in that, you know, they died with a look of terror on their mm-hmm. face. And usually but that, that something happened to Relief. him in that final moment that he understood somehow, even though we don't, right. he did. So we can take peace from that and still puzzle out what it is he did. Did or didn't know. Also, the actor 
he looks at him and there's a groan of horror that's really nice. Oh, right? It's beautifully simple and conveys a lot. Also, duty again. <laughs> Don't but say the it if big you don't want mystery that this evokes is what was going on at nightfall that they had this in them, right? <laughs> you know, part of me realized when I was looking at the list of nightfall episodes, this is very late in the run. It has a totally different opening, uh, a different uh, announcer, and that maybe most of the nightfall I have heard is earlier on, and maybe there was a tonal shift that I was not aware of. So I, it definitely makes me want to dip into more Nightfalls. Um, I mean, I'll be totally honest. I listened to the first 10 minutes of this and was just crushed and disappointed because I had got it in my head that this was going to be oh, this radical wacky. reinterpretation right. of The Signalman. And at first I was a little disappointed. And then I said, oh, come on. I literally started over and yeah. just sat down and focused on, on what it was not what I expected it to be and then was completely sucked in by it. Right. I, well, when I say like... I paused and took out the actual, took out, Googled the actual text of the script. He carries the signal man around with yeah. him. <laughs> Pocket edition. That was after trying to go through, like, did they just lift the lights out version? Have I already heard this exact version of this? Right. And it's so familiar because this is the closest to Ur version that there is. Mm-hmm. So everything else is going to sound familiar. Yeah, to my taste, you either do something like the original suspense version and completely update it or you do a really true version like this yeah those are my two favorite as of right now the first suspense version and this one creating mm-hmm. two adaptation polls i have an idea for three years from now patreon or morals fan fiction <laughs> they write it we produce it Ooh, get ready to be inundated with fan fiction eric <laughs> you write a signalman we'll record it yes <laughs> However, with caveats, yes, when we get 25 Signalman scripts, you have to sort through and tell the people (laughs) we aren't doing their scripts. Okay. (laughs) So like one of us would play the Signalman, one of us the Nader, and one of us the Train. (laughs) Oh, you know what I got dibs on. (laughs) (laughs) Woo-woo. Huh? 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 You got the part. Thanks. Plus, I don't have to work hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, should we vote? Yes. Yes. That is not... uh, We know what I'm going to do. That is not only the best version of Signalman so far, uh, in my opinion. I also believe it to be the best episode of Nightfall I've ever heard. Uh, I also believe it to be so true and so well done that I call it uh, Stand the Test of Time, that anybody could listen to this without all of this Signalman uh, (laughs) tradition that we have going on and enjoy it thoroughly. And I find it to be a classic of audio drama. Five stars across the board. I think not only is this like just a standalone fantastic piece of radio drama, but particularly, as I said, uh, Duncan Fraser's performance as the Signalman I thought was so grounded and had so many layers, it actually gave me new insights into the character and the story. And that's an impressive feat for an actor Mm -hmm. to do, I think. Yes, it's a bit of an outlier from the other Nightfalls we've heard. Maybe there are more in this somewhat tempered style. Um, So it could be a disappointment to someone who was expecting something uh, more brash and contemporary. Mm -hmm. But again, I think as a standalone piece of radio drama, this is a classic adaptation of a classic. So classic. Yeah. Like you were saying about the different models of adaptation, I think the suspense, the one that we've listened to first did a really good job of creating something evocative and meaningful without betraying the source material. Mm -hmm. Right. But this one really does an amazing job of taking a short story text and bringing it to life in a way that is very, very faithful, which often being very, very faithful to a text can fail Mm -hmm. to jump from one media to another. And this succeeds wildly. So yes, I agree. Classic. Tim, thanks so much. Merry Christmas, and thanks for this Merry year's Christmas. signalman. Or Happy New Year, depending on when this comes It's out. all downhill from here. Happy Boxing Day. Happy whatever. Happy winter. Tell them stuff. I will. Hey, go to ghoulishdelights.com. It is the home of this podcast. You can listen to many other episodes, including 
at least five other versions of the Signalman. 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 Signalman! Signalman! Yeah. <laughs> we just start doing the middle syllable. Signalman. <laughs> <laughs> you can also uh, vote in polls, leave comments, let us know what you think. You can send us notes, messages, cries for help. Maybe we'll help. Probably won't help. We're, we're not very helpful. <laughs> Um, you can also link to our social media pages, link to our Threadless store, buy some swag, and link to our Patreon page. Yes, go to patreon.com slash themorals and support this podcast. Listen to all of our bonus podcast episodes. Join us for happy hours where we all get together via Zoom and talk, you guessed it, old-time radio. For example, it's already passed, so you're too late, you missed it, but if you had a time machine and became a patron, you could have joined us for a happy hour in which we discussed the BBC television adaptation of The Signalman. So if you want more Signalman or Signalman, (laughs) become a patron today. Signalma. It's getting weird now. Hey, if you'd like to see us performing, the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society Theater Company does recreations, audio drama of classic old-time radio shows and a lot of our own original work. We perform monthly on stage, the three of us, along with Shannon Custer. Uh, If you'd like to see where we're performing this month and what we're performing, what day, and all of that, just go to ghoulishdelights.com or mysteriousoldradiolisteningsociety.com. But if you're a Patreon, uh, we do video it and video it. We film it or whatever, and then you get access. Particular language really vexes you because there is no more film or video. So like we upload a high quality video of our. There you go, and you get to watch that because you're a Patreon. Thank you. I got to get the language of that down. We'll just insert that in. Okay. (laughs) In a monotone. Yes. Thank you. Uh, What is coming up next? Next, we'll be listening to my pick. Junkyard from X-1. Until then... Look out! Duty.